0: Today's program is brought to you by Karen Carbon Partners, a food business consultancy that helps clients explore the interconnections among agriculture, food, policy, and people. For more information, visit kknp.com.
1: This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today's co host is our intern, Austin Brniarski.
0: Good to be here.
1: Great to have you, Austin. Uh, last season, we had pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Robert Lustig on the show to discuss sugar and its negative impacts. And today, as a follow up, we're gonna we're gonna be focusing on the one sugary product that is arguably most harmful for your health. That's sugary drinks. So there's been much in the industry, on um, much in the in the news recently about sugary drinks. um, From the New York Times, for example, reporting Coca-Cola's funding of scientific uh, studies that shifts the focus away from diet's role in obesity to the recently reported success of the soda tax in Mexico. Today, we're going to take a look back at when and why the public health community first started to get sugary to target sugary drinks. In addition to discussing what's on tap for soda policy in 2016, given these recent events. Joining us today to discuss these issues um, are, is Kelly Brunel, um, public health and food policy expert. Kelly is the Dean of Stanford School of Public Policy at Duke University, where he's a public policy professor and sits on the board of the Duke Global Health Institute. One of Time magazine's 100 most influential people, Kelly formerly directed the Red Center for Food Policy at Yale University and has advised the White House as well as written extensively about the intersection of public health. Policy, Psychology, and Obesity. Kelly, welcome to our show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And I believe, Kelly, I believe um, you and and Austin go go back uh, a bit.
3: I do have to admit, I took your course freshman year, uh, the Psychology, Biology, and Politics of Food.
2: Austin, I'm delighted to hear that, and I hope I assigned you a good grade. Uh, I can assure you that you did. No
1: yeah. um, we, have, we have only the finest interns with, with great grades. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Kelly, I want to I wanna um, kind of jump right in here. I think if, if, if for those of, uh, of our listeners um, from New York City, it may have seen – seems like we've been inundated with public health campaigns trying to raise awareness about the effects of sugary drinks. But in reality, I think the subject has only recently started to kind of get some mainstream traction. So I want to start this episode by looking back. Um, when, when did sugary drinks first come into the public health community's crosshairs and why?
2: They've been, the sugary drinks have been in the, the radar, been on the radar of science for a good number of years now. But in the, in the public health arena, that is what you're seeing on the ground in places like New York... There's really been an explosion of activity over about the past five years. And there have been campaigns in New York, in uh, Philadelphia, in Seattle, and a number of other places around the country to encourage people to consume fewer of these beverages.
1: Great. And you know what? I'm so- sorry to interrupt you, but we had some trouble connecting um, previously with our, uh, before the show started, with our other guest. But I am happy to report that he is now on the line in addition. So, um, um, Kelly, if you'll join me in welcoming um, Jim O'Hara from, um, from Center for the Science and the Public Interest. Um, Jim's the director there of health promotion policy and uh, has a long history in, in the field. Previously, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, as well as the FDA's as- Associate Commissioner for Public Affairs. Um, Jim, do we have you on?
4: You do. Uh, my apologies, Jenna and Kelly, for being late. Happy to join the conversation. No
1: worries. We're, we're thrilled to have you both on the line. Um, so, so great. So, so Kelly, um, y- you were talking about kind of the explosion in, in the past couple of years. What are some of these, what are some of the early proposals that you had seen aimed at, at reducing consumption? Were they largely regulatory or, or legislative?
2: Boy, there have been lots of things happening on lots of different levels to help Encourage people to consume less sugar particularly in these beverages. Uh, there have been very visible public education campaigns like the Poor on the pounds campaign that happened in New York City. Yeah. Um, there are efforts to get rid of sugar drinks in schools. That was probably the first frontier where a lot of progress has been made. Um, there are um, efforts to um, have labels on the sugar drinks to warn people of the health consequences and in other things, but probably, uh, what was considered at one point the most radical proposal is to put a tax on the sugared beverages. And that, as I said, was considered radical at one point, but now is happening in various places around the world and including in the U.S.
1: Yeah, and that's something we definitely want to get into um, in a little bit. We've got lots of lots of soda tax questions, um, absolutely. But w- would you have classified the you know? I mean, uh, Jim, Jim, I'm going to ask you. Direct this yes. to you. Um, do you think that some of the the interventions we've seen so far have been successful um, in efforts to get people to curb consumption?
4: Well, I, I think as as Kelly said earlier, there there's been a first off a great deal of education campaigns, and that has made a a difference. What we've seen in the last decade is about a 25% decline in soda consumption. So clearly those efforts, I think the conversations about the policy measures that Kelly mentioned, the soda tax, the warning labels, that's also increasing people's awareness of the health risks associated with the added sugars in sugar drinks.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: So I think one of the most contentious interventions uh, that has uh, been attempted in recent years was New York City's portion size restriction, popularly known as the soda ban. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask both of you, um, what, were, what went wrong there, and uh, w- what do we do moving forward? Uh, will there be similar attempts, or has this sort of um, ruined that type of intervention for, in terms of uh, moving forward.
2: I'll be curious to see what Jim thinks about this, but I would be very surprised if there aren't more attempts to do this. Um, A colleague of mine and I, an attorney, uh, wrote a piece in a medical journal talking about the legal authority of places like New York City to undertake a restriction on selling things in large portions. And government does have the authority. Now, in New York, uh, what people inappropriately referred to as a soda ban Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was only a restriction on how large the serving sizes can be. And they topped it off at 16 ounces. Now, when I was a a child, um, eight ounces was the biggest size that you could buy a soda in. And people would consume it, and then the event was done. They didn't feel they needed more. And so, to it at 16 ounces, which is twice that original size, seems like a pretty generous allowance for the soda companies as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there's a very strong public health rationale for this. If people are served things in larger containers, they consume more and they typically don't realize they consume more and they don't feel as full. So taking a drink, these sugared beverages that are contributing to a number of public health problems, diabetes and obesity and uh, most notably, and capping the portion sizes makes all the sense in the world. The the reason it didn't succeed in New York is it was considered arbitrary by by the state judiciary. Um, in that in New York City, because of the way the state law was written, the, the city only had jurisdiction in certain venues like movie theaters, mm-hmm. but not in others like a convenience store. So the movie theater wouldn't be able to sell a large portion, but the Seven Eleven next door would. And so in that sense, it was arbitrary because of this quirk in the way authority is granted in New York. But my sense is that these problems may not exist in other jurisdictions, and I would be very surprised if it doesn't happen again.
4: Right and I'd like to build on that I mean Kelly is exactly right the first what people fail to understand is that the court decision that struck down the portion restriction was a very narrow ruling that never really got to the substance of the public health issue at hand and it was very very much specific to the New York law the New York statute and the 16-ounce portion size, that sh- it typically a 16-ounce soda contains about 15 teaspoons of sugar. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans just recommended that every American should consume no more than about 12 teaspoons of sugar a day. So the public health rationale for a portion restriction is very, very strong.
1: Right. Um, This past November... Federal health officials reported that obesity, however, in American adults at least, ha- had not in fact declined in the past few years, and it's actually um, been shown to have edged up slightly to 38%. And at the same time, we have the beverage industry reporting that consumption of sugary drinks has decreased, and, and Jim, you just said that there's been a 25, I believe, percent decrease in consumption. So, so how, Jim, how would you d- explain the discrepancy here? I mean, this is an argument we hear a lot, of, a, a lot from ABA. How would you respond to that? Right.
4: The, the industry is trying to, trying to make a big deal out of that, but, but it really misstates uh, the, the, uh, the science or the evidence, if you will. The, the trend of obesity and the trend of, of soda consumption really, those two trend lines you really can't compare. You're comparing apples and oranges. You don't really understand what the dose-response relationship of the uh, consumption uh, patterns are and what we do know is that the the science continues to grow stronger that the the risk of health impact from consuming sugar drinks is is great for instance a person who consumes a sugar drink regularly that's about one or two cans a day has about 26% greater risk of developing type two diabetes than mm-hmm. a person who rarely consumes such a drink.
1: So basically they're still over consuming. Even though consumption Absolutely. has gone down. Okay.
2: Which well is if what- I might add to that the the biggest decline have been in the traditional flagship beverages. You think of Coke and Pepsi and things like that. But what, what have, has replaced them are whole new categories of sugared beverages like sweetened teas, sports drinks, energy drinks, and the like. Right. And people are consuming a lot of these sort of things. So there's no question that population consumption of these beverages is still way too high and needs to go down. But it's not the only thing that needs to be done to, to address obesity, but it's one of the most important.
1: So there's, there's more work to be done in terms of the education front, raising awareness around oh, right. what, what a sugary drink really is beyond soda.
3: And I think with the introduction of those new products has come a lot of uh, different forms of marketing to really make those products attractive. And Kelly, I know that a lot of your research focuses on the effects of marketing as it pertains to sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, and I think uh, just to sort of start off in this vein, um, does would you argue that everyone bears the burden of this marketing equally, or do certain um, demographics, age groups, um, Sort of face the face advertising or uh, other forms of marketing more than
2: others. Oh, uh, Austin, it's a very good question, uh, and I think to answer the latter part of your question first. Um, there's disproportionate marketing of unhealthy foods in general, including the sugared beverages, uh, to the most vulnerable parts of the population. So that would include children. It would include uh, people who don't have um, high um, financial means and certain racial groups. And that correlates, I don't know that it's causal, but it certainly correlates with higher rates of obesity in those parts of the population. And you have to take your hat off to the companies for being so effective in marketing. Uh, Coca-Cola is the most um, valuable brand of any company selling any product in the whole world. Hmm. The distribution is enormous. In the most remote places in the world, you'll find some of these beverages being sold. And part of that is due to the incredible amount of marketing they do and how effective they are. So there are some folks who believe that it would be beneficial if the marketing of unhealthy foods, including these beverages, were, were curtailed, especially to children.
1: Which of the marketing tactics do you think um, are most ripe for, for regulating? And, and by most ripe, I mean maybe feasible from a legal standpoint.
2: Well, the, the problem overall is that the Constitution protects different forms of speech, mm-hmm. and that would mean our ability to speak politically and religiously, but also commercially. And so over the years, the courts have afforded a lot of protection to companies to market products in whatever way they'd like. But you can get around this if products are marketed in deceptive or misleading ways. So I think that's probably the angle in which this will have to be addressed. But there are so many forms, the, pr- the problem is the overwhelming amount of of it. Here's an example. Uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation now is by far the largest funder of work on childhood obesity in the world, and they're spending $100 million a year, more or less, to address that problem. Well, the food industry spends $100 million every year by January 4th marketing <laughs> unhealthy food to children. So you could see that you that, can't. That seems out- like a fair fight. The, the, the companies. <laughs> they spend so much yeah and so there really has to be a cutback in the type and amount of marketing if you're going to have any hope especially considering children
3: and what are some of the tactics that the industry uses that might not be immediately apparent to us right I think we're used to thinking about advertising in terms of billboards and TV commercials but I can only imagine that for example the introduction and proliferation of the smartphone has provided only more avenues for industry to go down
2: yeah, I would like to hear Jim weigh in on this because yeah. his organization, uh, Center for Science and the Public Interest, has done some excellent work over the years on marketing.
4: Right. No, we, exactly. I mean, the marketing, uh, as we have seen from the tobacco industry of trinkets and trash, mm. is one of the most insidious ways of marketing where you actually make young people walking billboards. And so the T-shirts, the baseball caps uh... if you if you go to an amusement park uh... you can be by the time you you walk through the gate and and uh, are on your way to your first ride you can pretty much be outfitted head-to-toe uh... wearing the the brands the the logos of, of the various companies um, you know coca-cola for instance uh... thirty-eight million ads for products or promotions on children's websites in twenty thirteen That, despite their promise not to uh... advertise products to children so i think you know your your question about uh... the social marketing uh... is in is right on point as well that especially with uh, children uh, having their own smartphones and Having the industry develop the various apps, the various websites, again, it's it's a way to make the the child a walking billboard.
1: And what about corporate sponsorships? I want to talk about the, um, those for a minute because there there are quite a few companies that um, may profit from sell, you know from selling these products, but then um, which have negative health effects. But um, then, cultivate kind of an, an aura of goodwill by sponsoring community events, stadiums, things like that um, in, in your opinion, I want you know both of you to weigh in and Kelly, maybe you can kick us off. Do you think that corporate sponsorships are like a net good in the end or pro- problematic equally problematic problematic?
2: well, one certainly has to answer that question ask that question. You know if we, if we were to have a, one, of the, or one of these recordings on the number of ways companies market their products, we would be on for ten hours mm. i mean it's in addition to what you 've got said, time
5: there's <laughs> so many other things
2: like corporate sponsorships and it 's not only local things but think of the Olympics for example and and you go right. through one after another and you have athlete endorsements and uh, you know you 're the official pizza of the Super Bowl or whatever it happens to be. it just goes on and on and on and that's why i really do think that the government needs to get in and cut this back
5: yeah i find
3: it incredibly ironic that uh an ath this sort of pinnacle of health can uh Take a photograph with sugary Gatorade or even a bottle of Coca-Cola. Or even at Yale, you can do like excellent research at the public health school or the medical school. And meanwhile, uh, I think a CEO of a food and beverage company just announced the sponsorship of uh, the deanship at the School of Management. So, um there is really room for these
2: incredible ironies. Um, but Except,
5: it, things not, things are sorry.
2: Things changing, though, if I might say. Uh, Please do. Know, Tom Brady, I believe, and, and uh, Stephen Curry and some other pretty prominent athletes have refused but, to uh, take on sponsorships from some of these companies. And I think as that begins to happen more and more, you'll see the tide turning. Um,
1: and are yeah.
3: you seeing that uh, happening at the company level, too? Are there um, sort of uh companies that are coming out and saying or s- saying that they won't um do this kind of marketing or that they will want to try and do the right thing moving forward
2: yeah, I do think this will happen. When it becomes a public relations liability for the whatever event is being sponsored to be associated with a certain type of company, then they'll stop doing it. So, for example, you wouldn't imagine the Olympics being sponsored by tobacco companies. And as the soft drink companies become, um, have, the public approaches them with a more and more dim opinion, then I'm expecting the same sort of thing might occur in years to come.
4: Okay, great. You know, and there, are, there have been some small steps in progress in terms of, uh, you know, Kelly mentioned the work that we've done on, on marketing to children. My colleague Margo Wu Tan and, mm-hmm. and her team, they've done a lot to um, get sugar drinks off the default uh, beverage uh, for kids' meals. Uh, there's way more to be done, but it's a, it's a start. Uh, they've, they've been working on the effort to get uh, junk food and soda out of the checkout aisles where there are so many impulse purchases made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, these are, uh, these are the, the beginning steps, but they are important steps.
1: Right. And um, with that, uh, I think that we're going to take a really quick break and come back and get into some of these issues uh, in a little bit more detail.
0: Carbon Partners is a food business consultancy that helps clients explore the interconnections among agriculture, food, policy, and people. They help coordinate executives, school and government officials, distributors, and farmers think clearly about how food is produced, processed, and distributed, encouraging them to overcome challenges and pursue innovation. Their Good Food is Good Business division supports the healthy development, execution, and operations of food businesses and initiatives in the public and private sectors through strategic sourcing, feasibility analysis, market research, business planning, project management, and evaluation. Their good people are good business division builds leadership and organizational effectiveness through talent and performance management, organizational assessment, executive coaching, recruiting, and employee engagement services. For more than 20 years, Karen Carpenter Partners has been integral to the development and execution of food businesses policies and partnerships in the US and the UK. Visit them on the web at kknp.com.
1: And we're met we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Kelly Brownell and Jim O'Hara about sugary drinks and their policy implications. Um, we we started to touch on a little bit earlier on sugar soda taxes, and I want to come back to that now. Um, there's been a lot of attention uh, in the news around taxes in general. Most recently, I think the WHO just announced re- its recommendation um, to implement a tax around the world in an effort to reduce sh- uh, childhood obesity. And we all know last year that Berkeley was the first city in the nation to pass um, a soda tax as well. So I wanted to uh, Talk a little bit about this, and and Jim, I'm hoping you can um, kick us off with this discussion and give us an overview on on what's going on with these proposals um, right now. Where are they being introduced, and uh, what do they look like?
4: Well, the the good news is that we actually have a real-world example of the effectiveness of a soda tax. Mexico, Mm -hmm. which put in place a soda tax, uh, I think it was in 2012, Um, There's been an opportunity now to evaluate it, and Barry Popkin, uh, who has done a lot of work on this uh, issue internationally, he published recently a a study that showed that the sugar drink tax in Mexico had, in fact, decreased uh, sugar drink consumption by about 12% in the first year of its implementation. Uh, you mentioned Berkeley, California. Mm-hmm. Berkeley, California has raised about 1.5 million dollars with the sugar tax that they passed uh, back last uh, last year, and Berkeley has just uh, allocated that money towards various public health prevention programs uh, in the city of Berkeley, school nutrition programs, and things like that um, i know that california is gearing up for another uh... effort to pass a sugar ta- a sugar drink tax in the legislature this session alabama is looking at it illinois continues to look at it i think that uh... there are a number of communities around the uh, around the country at the local level uh... davis california appears to have stalled recently but i have no doubt that the advocates and in, in davis are going to keep working at it I, I think in davis the city council there has now called for a study of the issue so i'm certain that it will be back there so i think like the other policies that we were talking about earlier we're going to see sugar drink taxes uh, around the country and The industry can't fight them in every single place and win. The industry is going to start losing.
3: And I wanted to know a little bit more about this movement at the federal level. So I know um, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro introduced the SWEET Act, um, which was basically a national excise tax on um, the trading of soda um, to discourage its consumption. Was this more symbolic or down the road, do we think that this is actually a possibility?
2: Well, my guess is that this will follow the same course that tobacco taxes did, where the initial victories were at local and then state levels. And then when there were a critical mass of such taxes, uh, the federal government began to step in. So I'm sure that we'll see these things occur at more local levels and then at state levels. And then finally, the federal government will catch up as it has in Mexico.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: so sort of a trickle up effect. And That's Jim right. you you mentioned earlier um that Berkeley allocated some of the funding that it got from uh It's tax revenue um, toward this sort of public health um, cause. And I think some critics would say that, uh, oh, this creates sort of a perverse incentive to consume soda, right? If we know that, you know, we're paying a little bit more and that tax is going to something that's good. Um, I think critics sometimes mobilize that argument in saying why uh, a soda tax is kind of circuitous.
4: Uh, how, think, how would you counter? That? I think what you need to understand is is soda tax really shows the real cost of a sugar drink. Mm-hmm. Sugar drinks have frankly been sold by the companies for years and years uh, at uh, at a level that really doesn't reflect their cost to society, and so it's it's a Standard economic principle that, in fact, what you should do is make these products show their real cost, and that's what a soda tax does. And Mm. then that money is allowed to be used for the prevention efforts. The, The SWEET Act that you mentioned could provide about $10 billion a year for public health prevention funding in this country.
3: And I'm sort of curious about where this artificially like low price of soda comes from. And I'm sort of just thinking about this now, so I can't really back it up. Um, But do uh, like corn subsidies um, and the production of high fructose corn syrup in the United States, does that have anything to do with why soda is so inexpensive and doesn't really reflect the cost of society in the first
1: place?
2: Yeah, that has a very simple answer and it's yes. <laughs> Amazing.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad that we I'm glad we solved that issue in in one word. Um, I want to I want to uh, shift attention a little away from um, taxes for a minute and talk about um, SNAP. So, there have been a number of attempts um, in recent years aimed at restricting SNAP recipients from using their benefits to purchase unhealthy products, namely soda. So, um, Kelly, in your opinion, do you think that what do you think the likelihood is that uh, a proposal like this will come to pass, and is is this an effective way aimed at curbing consumption?
2: Certainly if you were, so the SNAP program, former food stamp program, mm-hmm. if you were constructing it from scratch today, there's no way that you would want supplemental nutrition to come to people in the form of sugared beverages right. or other junk food. So the question is, why does it happen historically and why can't it be changed more quickly? Um, Historically, there are a complicated set of reasons for this, but one of the reasons people have opposed uh, having um, a restriction on soda being purchased with those kind of benefits is that it would be taking something away from people, a pleasure away from people when they've been accustomed to it. Um, I don't think that argument will prevail very long, and I suspect at some point the government will see the folly in buying $4 billion a year worth of sugared beverages for the American population and then having to pay for the the diseases that they cause, obesity and diabetes, all from taxpayer money. So I suspect that that policy will probably change, but it may take a while.
4: And and we're already seeing the movement. The uh, recent report by the Federal Hunger Commission, Mm -hmm. in fact, recommended that there be a... uh, Uh, taking taking sugar drinks out of the the SNAP program. I think especially the strategy of of tying that with providing incentives so that SNAP recipients can, in fact, then purchase healthier food is really the way this is likely to to play out. And, again, these things take time, but the, the movement is continual.
3: And um, sort of in the uh, in understanding uh, how um, maybe more policy debates or which on un- which policy debates are going to unfold in in the next year, um, are there any interesting or promising or sort of novel proposals that maybe not everyone has heard about that you think could be really successful in uh, 2016?
1: Who wants I'm, to take it first? I'm actually <laughs>
4: very optimistic that one of the warning label efforts is going to succeed. Uh, in New York State, for instance, the warning label bill on sugar drinks was approved by the Consumer Affairs Committee of the State uh, Assembly. Um, there's a companion bill in the State Senate. Uh, I think that that is... Uh, a real possibility in Baltimore, uh, we have an ordinance that provides for putting warning labels at point of sale and also on containers. Uh, that ordinance is actually supported by a majority of the city council. So I think uh, I think we're going to see success on one of these warning label efforts. Kelly, your thoughts?
2: Well, I, I think that this, the soda tax idea, although it may not sound novel because we've just talked about it, mm-hmm. is highly novel, and I think that this will really spread across the country. And there are a lot of things happening behind the scenes that would indicate that to be the case. And then second is I think there will be more and more discussion at the national level about lining up agriculture policy with health policy. Mm-hmm. So, Austin, you brought up the issue about the subsidies to the, uh, the for the corn producers to make high-fructose corn syrup that's just one of many such interesting economic questions that have to be posed and more and more the public are beginning to ask that, the same kind of questions like you did and i think that's a sign of the changing times and we'll see more of that
4: so speaking you of- know there's there's going to be a very visible change later this year the nutrition facts label mm-hmm. which is on every single product in the grocery store is going to have a line for added sugar And it's going to have a percent daily value. And when your 10-ounce or 16-ounce Coke is telling you that you're consuming 100 or 130 percent of your daily value of added sugar, that's going to have a huge impact on consumer behavior.
1: Right. Okay, so we have time for one more question, and um, I want to ask you both to kind of consult your crystal balls. Um, <laughs> soda was the next tobacco. So uh, my question to both of you is what's going to be the next soda, so the next public health uh, you know, issue that industry should be preparing for? Jim, do you want to start us off?
4: Uh, well, I have to say uh, – my crystal ball is a little murky, but I'm <laughs> hoping it is. I'm hoping it is sodium, because if there's one thing that could actually uh, improve the public health of this country immensely, it would be reducing sodium or salt in the food supply. Seventy-five percent of the salt that we consume each day doesn't come from us turning our salt shaker on its head; it comes from Processed and restaurant food.
2: Kelly, your thoughts? Uh, yes, I believe that um, I, I do think sodium is, makes sense, and for the very reasons that Jim said. But I also think the re, one of the reasons that uh, the, the sodas have become such a target is that the science linking them to, to health negative health consequences is so strong. So you could ask, what other category might be coming next? And I think fast food as a as a category is likely to fall into place with the science after soda. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of the public health uh, interventions being aimed at soda don't get aimed at fast food at some point. Mm
1: -hmm. Great. Um, We're going to have to unfortunately leave it there. I want to thank both of our guests so much. Uh, We had Kelly Brownell from Duke University and Jim O'Hara from CSPI. Thank you guys for joining us today.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, our show is produced by my brilliant co-host, Kim Kessler, and myself. And our, uh, and our intern is the one and only, Austin Brnyarski. Show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you for our sponsors. And thank you to our show engineer, Liz Smith. Uh, the show's available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at Eat Matters I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening.